Welcome to the Public Morality. What is democracy? Is it simply defined as political power wielded by the people? Is it the right to vote? If so, which people, some people, all the people? The United States Constitution begins, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. But history suggests we was never designed to be as inclusive as reasonable persons might assume. On January 6, 2021, however democracy was defined, it was called into question as U.S. citizens violently stormed the Capitol. To discuss the topic of democracy, we welcome to the public morality Professor Luke Mayville. Professor Mayville teaches political science at Boise State University and is the author of John Adams and the Fear of American Oligarchy. Professor Luke Mayville, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. We use terms interchangeably to describe America's form of government, a, a democracy, a republic. So I'd like to begin by having uh, you define the American form of government in theory, and does that theoretical, theoretical application align with its actual practice? Well, there's an old debate over whether we are, in fact, a republic or a democracy. Uh, in, in my view, we really are a democratic republic. Uh, and the way I understand that historically is that, you know, the formal structure of our system is more clearly a republic and not a democracy. Uh, in fact, many of our founders were pretty explicit that they were not setting up a democracy. Sometimes they use the word democracy to describe it, but more often... Um, they talked about representative government. They they talked about a government based on selecting representatives who were uniquely qualified to rule. And in fact, they were uh, when you if you read a document like the Federalist Papers, they were somewhat fearful of the power of majorities. And they and and you know that is why we have so many frustrating, you might say, elements in our constitutional system, elements that are counter-majoritarian, that actually try to control the power of majorities, things like the Supreme Court, things like the bicameral legislature, um, the Electoral College, all of these frustrating counter-majoritarian elements. So that, in that sense, we are very much a republic and not a democracy, but, but the fact of our history is that even before the Constitution, we have had robust forms of democracy at the local level, at the, you know, at the colony level, and, and really everywhere you, you see ordinary people involved directly in both deliberation and decision-making on important issues. And that's continued to be the case, uh, you know, in, when, in the 1830s when when Alexis de Tocqueville famously came to the United States from France, he, he saw this robust democratic culture um, in America. And um, all the way through to, till today, even, even if our institutions aren't directly democratic, I don't think it's up for debate that we have ordinary people involved in the political process at every level, and that has been 
a fundamental part of, of uh, the tradition of this country. Um, so that's that's where I come down and call us a democratic republic. So given where we are now, uh, when you think about where and what we are from your perspective in 21st century, and you think back to 1787, which is, which is a very di- different culture socially, politically, and economically, does the Constitution today in, in some manner need to catch up in your view? Well, in, it's, it's a tricky question. In some ways, the most anti-democratic aspects of our Constitution weren't even present in the founding. So, for example, we're talking a lot right now in our politics about the filibuster. In, in the filibuster is arguably the most counter-majoritarian uh, part of our constitutional system. And the, the, the filibuster is, is used now to block uh, majority rule consistently in, in, the, in the United States Senate. It wasn't always used that way, or at least not nearly as aggressively. It really emerged and became that the institution is today just in, in really in the last several decades, 50 years. So I will say that. But that said, there are several counter-majoritarian, counter-democratic aspects to our system that I think there's a very good argument that, you know, you would ideally want them to be changed. For example, the fact that the United States Senate uh, represents, gives, gives all states equal representation, meaning that, <laughs> you know, where, where uh, states like Idaho, where I sit right now, or or, you know, Wyoming or Montana, they have about, if I remember correctly, they have about 120th or 125th as many people as the state of California, but they have the exact same amount of power in the United States Senate. Um, that's not a one-person, one-vote system, right? That, that's that, that's a quite undemocratic system. But, but, you know, if you really put me on the spot and force me on this question, I don't think that we're going to abolish the United States Senate anytime soon. Um, so I think we have to get more serious about how can we how can we democratize our system? How can we make it more democratic? How can we feasibly do that? Uh, what what can we change to what what can we what kind of changes can we imagine that we could actually make to make our system more democratic. And when you look at the constitutional system, it's very difficult to imagine wholesale, you know, transformation of our constitutional order. It's just, it's very difficult to see how that would happen. I know there are some thinkers, like there's a book, if anyone's interested by Sanford Levinson called Our Undemocratic Constitution, where he outright calls for a new constitutional convention that would, that would, transform all of the undemocratic parts and make our system more democratic. I don't see the path to making that happen. And you, you mentioned the Senate in particular, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've only, I mean, we, the people, have only been electing senators for a little over 100 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So, that's, so senators were originally chosen by state legislatures, not directly by voters. And it was only through constitutional amendment uh, in the early 20th century that we were given the right to directly elect our, signature, our senators. So in that respect, 
the system is, has become more democratic. And in fact, that's what someone like Sanford Levinson, who wants, you know, transformative changes to the United States Constitution, they will point to that early progressive era in the 20th century where we had the wave of constitutional changes. And they'll point to that as proof that you can, in fact, do it. And I don't want to foreclose that. I think in certain cases, like that was one change that was feasible and it was made, that the direct election of senators. But but if you imagine changes such as, you know, so that some people envision like abolishing the Senate altogether or perhaps or, you know, abolishing the Supreme Court altogether, those kinds of things are hard. It's harder to see a path to that kind of that kind of progressive constitutional change. And there's not and there's not a whole lot of groundswell of a, um, you know, passionate demand for that. The, the, the kind that you would need. However, but I, I don't want to come across as someone who isn't interested in, you know, big reforms that would make our system more democratic. For example, um, another big one from the progressive era in the early 20th century is that uh, states, especially all across the Western United States, adapted the, uh, sorry, adopted the institution of the ballot initiative, form of direct democracy, where you propose where ordinary people can propose their own law, and then if they get enough signatures and get the majority of the vote, it can change the law and sometimes change the Constitution. Um, and we, I don't know if we, we might get more into this, but that, apart from my academic work, my main political work here in Idaho is actually being involved directly in the ballot initiative process here in the state of Idaho. Well, originating originating from California, so I'm well I'm I'm well versed in the uh, pros and cons of direct democracy. I I I would say that the the biggest problem, probably the biggest lesson learned in California is twofold. It originally it, it originated as a way to get around you know the the, the robber barons, uh, people who were dominating the state politics, but what it it became a cottage industry for people who just did ballot initiatives. And usually things were put on the ballot without any way to say how they were going to pay for it and sort of lock and lock the legislature in. So that, that would be my words of caution. Yeah. And could, could I chime in on that? Because I'm, it, you know, even though I am someone who is, you know, out there advocating for specific ballot initiatives in the state of Idaho, I am not uncritical of the ballot initiative institution of, of the of, of the history of ballot initiatives in this country, and I think that if, if people look into it, they'll find that there are. If you go state by state, some systems are much better than other systems. One feature of the California system that is not present in Idaho um, and not present in several other states. Uh, that, and it's a feature that I really think is bad, and it's it's what you're pointing to, Byron. It's this um, this uh, feature that says that ballot initiatives are actually a higher form of law than legislative laws, and therefore it's extremely as you use the term ballot initiative lock in things and make it extremely difficult for the legislature to amend them. I believe that ballot initiatives should be treated exactly the same 
the, the laws that, that result from them should be treated exactly the same as legislative laws. And legislatures ought to have a right to amend. Now, the people who passed, if there is a true grass, grassroots groundswell behind an initiative, and it's not just this cottage industry thing that you're, that you're pointing to of a special interest group putting something on the ballot, but it actually is a groundswell, and, and they pass an initiative, and then the legislature comes out and tries to change it dramatically, then it's the responsibility of that grassroots movement to then push back. And it becomes a really healthy conflict, actually, between, you know, this kind of grassroots democracy and this um, classical represent, representative republic, um, you know, clashing in a healthy way with one another. You know, you, you had mentioned earlier about, def- you know, really defining what this form of government is that we have. And, and I was thinking about, weren't the founders, in your view, more concerned actually with avoiding democracy, specifically that Athenian state? Wasn't Federalist 55 where Madison's rights had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still be a mob? So they were, they were looking at, let's not be Athenia. Yes, I think so. They were um, very much, I mean, it was probably the case that what was even more on their mind was a certain kind of what they what they considered out of control majoritarianism in the state governments under the you know this brief experiment of the Articles of Confederation that were set up in the you know, before we had the United States Constitution for a few years we had a different system just that that emerged with the American Revolution called the Articles of Confederation, where we had um, these various, it it was a very loose-knit federation of states, and some of the state governments were quite democratic in in the sense that gave a lot of power to majorities, and people like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton didn't like what was happening. They thought um, that the majorities had too much power. They, They were very fearful, for example, of the, the kind of power that majority sentiment could have over economic policy, um, and and they and then and they often compared that to what they saw as a you know a, a almost tyrannical democratic order that existed in Athens in ancient Athens, and and when they envisioned this representative form of government, they often envisioned it in contrast with um, classical Athenian democracy, which is something that the course I'm now teaching is very much interested in, really going back, looking at the institutions of ancient Athens, looking at very different critics of democracy, including the United States founders, but also going back to the ancient Greek philosopher Plato and and looking at, at the ways that very trenchant critiques of, of democracy were made. Now, we can agree that the, that, um, the Supreme Court, I mean, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Uh, hence, we the people. And, I, and what I'm wondering is, is part of our tension, uh, since we committed to we the people, but that we has not been as historically inclusive as one might assume and is, is that an ongoing tension that, that we've battled with throughout our history certainly i think um i thought that's that's one way to tell the political and social 
history of the United States as a as a constant struggle to make we the people a fully inclusive ideal. And it is it's challenging to think what that means. And the, this is part of what students in my course will be thinking through this this semester. But um, what does this mean in terms of the constitutional system that we've inherited in this country? In in some cases when you have an institution like the Supreme Court that is a check on, you know, majorities, in, in some cases in our history, right, with a case like um, Brown v. Board of Education, um, that becomes a check against tyrannical majorities who are oppressing a minority group in the population. Uh, and that, and, and most, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, I don't know. But I don't know. I don't know if I want to say most people, um, especially in recent years. But I would like to think that most people would think that that's actually a very good instance of counter-majoritarian, you know, counter-majoritarian activity, counter-majoritarian activity in our constitutional system, where it's a it's a Supreme Court actually standing up for an oppressed minority. However, my, in my understanding of our the larger sweep of our history, those counter-majoritarian institutions have been more likely to protect not oppressed minorities, but powerful minority interests, such as, you know, um, corporations um, and and their ability um, to remain, you know, unregulated, to retain a great deal of power over their workers. And, and things like that, or for example, a very if you're if you're if, if, if you're powerful, you know, powerful lobbying organization, and you can sway a couple senators, those senators can then filibuster legislation that could be for the benefit of you know ninety percent of the population. But that's a tension in our history when you talk about the you know we the people and the and the struggle to make. The, the people, um, a more inclusive thing. It's a struggle uh, to actually, it's, it's, it, well, it's a tension when we talk about these counter-majoritarian institutions. What are they, prote- who, who are they protecting from the majority? What is, is majority, what, who, what is the threat posed by the majority? Is it, is it a threat uh, of tyranny over vulnerable minority or is it a threat um, or is it more thought of as a threat um, of tyranny over, uh, you know, powerful minority interests? And I think that's an interesting question to um, ask as you look over American history. Hmm. Uh, When you look at the events uh, that fueled uh, the January 6th edition on Capitol Hill, what does it say to you about the nature of currently of America's democratic Republican form of government. It's such a fascinating case uh, when you think in terms of democracy and our democratic Republic, uh, because on the one hand it is, it is a case of mob violence and um, it's a, it's a, it could be understood as a classical case of the threat posed by mobs and historically, you know, the most, critical thinkers when it comes when it comes to thinking about democracy they often see the demos or you know 
democratic power as synonymous with the mob. Uh, part of the reason they oppose Athenian democracy is because they think that it meant rule by the mob. So there's a certain strain of, you know, anti-democratic thinking over the last 2,000 years uh, that would see uh, January 6th not as a threat to democracy so much as an expression of democracy. And um, the need to, you know, to the the reaction to it ought to be to you know rein in democratic power. Um, however, that's that's not what we're more commonly here, and that that's that's not um, the the reading of January sixth that we're that we're seeing. Um, for the most part, it's more often thought of as um, I mean. We more often hear that what happened on January 6th is a direct threat to our democratic institutions. Um, And I think that is, on the whole, the better way to think of it, because um, insofar as democracy is a cherished value that we hold dear, um, it is because democracy has not merely been mob rule. Um, democracy, to some degree, has been an ordered expression of the power of ordinary people through democratic institutions. Uh, it hasn't just been utter chaos and violence. It's been it's been delibe- it's been collective deliberation and decision making done through some kind of institutional framework. And in that respect, what happened on January sixth. It is very much a direct threat to democracy because um, it's an effort by a mob to say that, you know, our raw strength, our our show of force is more important than, you know, the deliberation and the, you know, institutionalized decision making that that happens in this body of government, this this Congress. Um, we, with our raw power. Um, have some kind of right to stop a, um, a, a democratic process from taking place uh, in this this chamber of government. So, um, so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question, but overall I, I think it's more appropriate to think of it as a direct threat to democracy. What I'm hearing you say is it, um, for, 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 for the mob, it's a preference for Shay's Rebellion uh, over Madisonian deliberation, I think so, and I I, I go back to the um, Federalist Paper Number One. Alexander Hamilton has this striking line where he says, "You know, what is at stake in this experiment? Uh, is this American experiment is um, will we?" And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but. Um, Will our fate be determined by um, deliberation and choice, or will it be determined by accident and force? That's what we are determining as we set out to craft this Constitution. Then uh, I think as you look at a, at a, you know history, uh, American history, you see both expressions of collective power <laughs> um, it, here here in Idaho, for example. Um, we recently was something I was 
deeply involved in. Um, we had this very ordered, but also, you know, it boisterous, you know, rowdy at times, but, but still very ordered ballot initiative campaign to expand the, the state's Medicaid program. Um, to now about 100,000 more people are getting health care through that. And that all happened through this popular ballot initiative, this expression of collective power. But then uh, parallel to that, right right around the same time, we're seeing, you know, militia movements and um, large numbers of people storming the Capitol. So even here at the local level in Idaho, we're seeing both of these different sides of, of collective power um, and, you know, a critic of democracy might say that both of those are equally, you know, the, both of those are very much democracy at, at work. Um, I think someone who's more friendly to democracy might say, no, we have to draw a line between the mob version of democracy and the institutionalized version of democracy, the, the, the deliberation oriented version of democracy. Well, we've talked about the, uh, Democratic side of that equation, but, but, but as you stated earlier, that you define as a democratic republic. And so, you know, prior to America's origin, uh, anyone who has given thought to Republican forms of government, be it Machiavelli or Montesquieu, um, have always placed a notion on civic virtue. And, and I'm defining civic virtue as those ideals that rise above, let's say, personal interests. And in the American narrative, that would be, in my view, and, and please um, offer your view if, I, if you have a different one, but I would say it comes out of the Declaration of Independence is liberty and equality is our, is our, is our fundamental civic virtue. If that's true, sh- shouldn't we also view the events of January 6th as a direct attack on that civic virtue? I think so. I think, I think that's right. Uh, I, I think that um, insofar as we have a very rich, robust tradition of democracy in this country, it has been grounded in commitments to these values, these fundamental values of, of liberty and equality. Um, and insofar as, as, it, as it just becomes about sheer power of numbers, um, and and not and especially you know raw physical power showing up with your body and um, and physically threatening people that's it's very much not about um, ideals anymore um, it's it's not about principles it's it's just power um, and so I think that that's a very that's a very threatening uh, tendency. And in fact, um, I think, you know, those of us who are friends of democracy and want to see democracy um, survive and thrive in this country, um, I think there's there's a tradition, another tradition that we also ought to be a part of, which is the tradition of civic education, of, um, of really taking it upon ourselves as citizens to pass on to the next generation. Um some kind of grappling with these ideals of freedom and equality. And, uh, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean just, you know, having schools become just pure indoctrination centers for some, for some, you know, 
idea that's laid down in a textbook of what freedom and equality is, but it but it certainly means engaging young people in in a in, in a lively active discussion of our history and of how these ideals have played out in our history, how these ideals have often been betrayed in our history. Um, because it, it, it certainly seems to me that if you want to have, you know, a healthy, uh, successful democratic order, um, you do need to have, at least it's to some degree, you do have to have, um, widespread commitment to, to, some version of these principles. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Luke Mayville. Professor Mayville teaches political science at Boise State University, and he is the author of John Adams and the Fear of American Oligarchy. Professor Mayville, if if American civic virtue is indeed uh, living equality, would would it also then stand to reason that American democracy, however defined, cannot be the end of itself? I think this is this is one question that that I'm posing to students um, this semester is, you know, is democracy an end in itself, or is it best understood as a means towards some other end? Uh, my best answer to that, and maybe I maybe I won't um, share this recording with my students until the end of the semester <laughs> because I want them to think think about it themselves, but. Um, my best answer to that is that it democracy is best understood as a means to um, it, it's best understood as a means and not an end in itself. It's, it's best understood as a way to achieve um, a just political order. Um, and, and, you know, and and we have we, we have a tradition in this country of understanding that in, in terms of freedom and equality, but I, I think of it most fundamentally as democracy is in the service of justice. Um, but it has to be understood that it's not just, in my view, democracy isn't just one means among many that you might have justice. It is an absolutely necessary condition. Um, you, in, and, and this is something I think that is very much up for debate, but my firm view is that you cannot have justice um, without democracy. And, and that's, but I'm, I'm seeing this very much in our society today, especially when it comes to economic injustice and, and econ- economic inequality. Um, I worry that, we have suffered in the last 30, 40 years um, a great decline of active engagement in our democracy. Uh, I, I read, I, I've been very influenced by, you know, texts like um, Theda Scotchpole's book, Diminished Democracy, um, where she traces, uh, she looks at political and civic organizations and she sees uh, a, a great shift from broad-based membership-type organizations, including labor unions, maybe first and foremost, being directly involved in politics at the grassroots level. She sees a shift from that kind of membership-based democracy to what she sees as managerialism, where we have instead we have a lot of top-down 
activity, even in, you know, some of the most progressive organizations are still run by very few people and they don't actually engage large numbers of people at the grassroots in a, in a very robust way. And as that, as our democracy has diminished, it's precisely in those same decades that you've seen an ever-widening economic inequality to the point now where we have greater difference between the super-rich and everyone else than at any time since the 1920s. So when I step back and look at this, I think we need democracy because if we don't have democracy, we will not have justice, we will, we will have an oligarchic form of society. Um, we, we will lose any semblance of what we've traditionally understood as basic social and economic justice in this country. Um, and so in, in that sense, democracy is less a, an end in itself and more of a means to the end of justice. But that's not to minimize democracy, because democracy is the active involvement of ordinary people in politics is an absolutely necessary condition of achieving justice. Well, that's why I, I, I raise the issue with you about civic virtue, because so much, it seems to me at least, so much of when we talk about democracy or a democratic republic, the emphasis is placed on the political. But, but if we're going to talk about the civic virtue, does that also include sort of the economic and social considerations you just sort of referenced in your last answer? Are those, those, are those not equally important to the civic virtue of a society? I think so, and I, I, I even hesitated earlier when speaking about civic virtue um, in you know saying that I, I do believe that there has to be some level of widespread commitment to uh, to equality and liberty in the public for democracy to succeed. But I also believe that historically, the success of democracy has been based just as much on economic interest as on um, you know, moral principles. Um, and by that, I mean that, you know, people have been motivated to be ordinary. People have been motivated to be directly involved in our democratic process. Often, you know, through some combination of moral principle and, and direct economic interest, they want their family to have the basic necessities to live a decent life, and that's why they get involved in the they, they get involved in their labor union, and then you know demanding a more just economic order um, because they they need to have wages and benefits and work hours and and and, um, and that's just as important of a tradition as a tradition of you know people motivated by ideals. We, we need people to be also standing up for their own interests. Um, and, and that's what I worry that that's one great element that has, has been not entirely lost, but, but certainly diminished, um, is large numbers of people who see how just uneven our economy has become but they don't really see a way that they can active that they can get involved, and, and in some cases, it's because of just the sheer scale of cynicism, where people don't believe that things can change, 
Um, they, you know, what some, uh, I don't have the specifics in front of me, but there's, I, I'm, my understanding is there's, there's been a great deal of polling of working class Americans finding that, you know, they're, they're just as, um, often, often, you know, if, if they are, um, possibly sympathetic with, with some of the right wing populism that's out there around, you know, exclusion of immigrants and things like that. They're often just as sympathetic towards economic populism that would rein in corporate power, that would more evenly distribute income in this country and, and wealth in this country. But the, the problem, in my view, from what I and, and from what I've seen in some of this data, they just don't believe the economic populism can work. They don't actually they've grown. Too many people have grown cynical that real economic change is possible. So it becomes easy to then turn instead to things like, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really think income and wealth can be redistributed, but I, but, but I do think a wall can be built. So I'm, a, so I'm, a, so I'm going to go for that instead. Um, and that's, and just to kind of bring this full circle, I think that's where we have to have a tradition. What we have to have a practice of, you know, finding ways for people to actually believe that they can get involved in the in the democratic process to stand up for their own economic self-interest. When we examine um, the American narrative and we talk about its pursuits of liberty and equality, don't we also have to include that paradox has had a subversive role? And and when I'm referring to paradox, I'm, I'm speaking specifically, for example, all men are created equal, but we have slavery. We passed the 15th Amendment to give black males the franchise, but there's still roughly half the population in women that couldn't vote. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said in World War One, we're going to make the world safe for democracy, but it was clearly not safe for blacks and German-Americans, and we can just go on with World War Two and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering um, whether you think the elasticity of American democracy in the present moment has reached this limit. Do you, and just to, just to clarify your question, what do you, um, could you, could you say a little bit more about like what that elasticity would mean in, in the present moment? Well, January 6th would be an indicator of that, of that, of -hmm. of that elasticity that these things you've talked about so far, um, you know, yes, I believe in, you know, income redistribution. That won't happen, but I'll go for a wall. The wall doesn't happen, so we have reenactments of Shades of Rebellion. That's sort of the, the elasticity sort of reaching its limit, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that we have, a, we have a, a great danger on the horizon that we're already beginning to see. Um, you know, when you look at what I what I wish we had more of a chance to talk about, had it not been for January sixth, which is January fifth, uh, what happened in Georgia, right? Um, you have a rising, you have a very genuine rising multiracial democracy, where Black Americans are wielding you know, a great deal more power as part of a multiracial political coalition um, than 
certainly any time since Reconstruction um, in in a place like Georgia, and um, and that is a striking feature of our era. And I've often thought when you know when Trump first got elected, and and there's more and more discussion of how far have we fallen, how how did this happen? I've often thought it's important to step back and think just how important an era we're living through. And and it, uh, I think people got a little complacent thinking, you know, not really understanding how historic of an era this is where we're on the cusp. I mean, people talk a lot about, you know, we will eventually become a majority minority country where 51% of America will be people of color. Um, and that's one way to talk about it. But an even more significant way, I, I think, is when you actually look at cases like Georgia, where it's translating directly into political power. And and then when you step back and think, OK, if you are a middle class white man and you have certain kinds of aspirations and you have not bought in, as we've talked a lot about with civic virtue, you haven't necessarily bought in. To the to some kind of American tr- tradition of striving forever and ever more equality and freedom for everyone, um, and you're thinking just more strictly in terms of the future for my family um, and the kind of path, the the kind of status that I have in society. And you see things like what's happening in Georgia. Um, it, I, I can't help but think that there's just that people feel directly threatened by that loss of power um, and that sense of um, that sense that um, they are being diminished. And of course, for those of us who have a commitment to equality, we don't, I think we don't see it that way. We see it as we see society becoming more equal. Um, But some, but many people, I believe, um, see, as is often said, they see equality as a kind of inequality because they see themselves being diminished. Um, and they don't necessarily see it as like unfair privileges being taken away. Um, instead they, they just see that they're losing power. They're perhaps losing some economic, um, that some economic influence as well. Um, and then if you magnify that by millions and millions of people, um, we, we have a, a situation where we're on the cusp of actually achieving a more genuine multiracial democracy in this country than perhaps at any time before, mm. but while also seeing perhaps, you know, tens of millions of people who feel directly threatened by that. And that's, yeah, that's, that's an, an elasticity that, that could snap. Uh, and, and I think that's something we have to all take very seriously in the years ahead. Professor Luke Mayville, thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. This is a lovely conversation. I love the show. Thanks so much for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. 
The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>